Father, we are grateful that we have your word. We are grateful that you have given it to us. We are grateful that every word of it is inspired and without error. We are grateful, Lord, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us into all truth. Uh, we are grateful, Lord, that that word is uh, true in and of itself. We thank you that is the word of Christ, and we thank you that it, it sets us free, as Jesus said, when we abide in it. When we abide in that word, then we're his disciples. And that word has the ability to set us free to set us free from anxiety, and to set us free from depression, and to set us pre free from worry, and uh, to set us free from hopelessness. We thank you for the power of your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the written word, and we thank you for uh, this film that has been made, which is not the written word, but it is a portrayal of what happened in Scripture and what really happened in Jerusalem. And we would pray that your spirit would work in the lives of many people to draw them to Christ, that there would be an understanding and an appreciation of who he is and what he has done, and that our lives are meaningless without him. Uh, I would pray for uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, he has taken a tremendous amount of heat. Um, he has put himself on the line. And we thank you that he has done that. We pray that you'll continue to work in his life. We pray that you'll continue to mature him uh, in the scriptures. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we thank you that he had the courage to stand up. Uh, uh, a guy who has really put his career on the line because he's standing against everything that that industry stands. He's going against everything they stand for. So we pray that your favor would be upon him. Uh, Lord, he's a man with flaws. He's a man that, uh, he's just a guy. But he has used his skills and his efforts to honor you. Now, Lord, most of us don't have that kind of arena. We don't have that kind of platform. But in our way and with our gifts, we want to honor Christ in the same way. Uh, we want to be your men at the post to which you have assigned us. So, Father, we're here tonight to study the life of one of the great kings, if not the greatest king. We pray that we will learn from uh, his example. We pray, Lord, that even as we're here tonight, you'll speak to us from the Scriptures. You'll give us precisely and exactly what we need. We can't live without your word. Uh, your word, uh, it's not an idle word to us, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 32. It is our life. So feed us, encourage us, uh, uh, rebuke those of us who need to be rebuked, correct us, put us on the path of righteousness. We tend to drift. We all do. Thank you for your mercy and your long-suffering. And we ask these things in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, tonight, as we continue, and we've been in this study since... Uh, September, our study on, the, uh, on what we're calling Living Lessons from Dead Kings. Uh, a real brief summary, uh, you had Saul, then you had David, then you had uh, Solomon. And as you guys well know, who have been here most weeks, after Solomon, his son Rehoboam took the throne, and that's when the nation split. 
So then suddenly Israel becomes two nations, much like what happened to us during the Civil War. You've got uh, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, which would be called Israel. In the south, you have uh, Judah, which is the name of that nation, uh, comprised of the, of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, in the northern kingdom, as you take a look at their history and what happened to them, all 20 of the kings, there were 20 in the north, 20 in the south, after Solomon. All the 20 in the north were wicked and evil. Uh, their lives amounted, quite frankly, to nothing. They, they, they were men who lived wasted lives. They had a lot of opulence. They had a lot of prosperity. Uh, they, had, uh, they had nice homes, and they had uh, a Lexus and a Mercedes uh, chariot in the garage, and they had you know a jacuzzi. They had the whole thing. Uh, they had a good retirement portfolio, uh, but they're dead and gone now. And if they had it to do over again, they'd probably wish they could do it differently. That's the story of the kings of the north. In the south, of the 20 in the south, eight of them were called good. Now, tonight, we're going to look at a guy named Josiah. And a case can be made that Josiah is the greatest king who ever lived other than David in, in the line of Israel. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. We actually looked at Josiah's life uh, Oh, maybe a year and a half ago uh, in this study, before we commenced on our study on the kings. Now, last week we talked about Manasseh. Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. Uh, if you turn to Second Chronicles, uh, rather Second Kings 22, um, we're going to find the story of Josiah. Now, Joseph, remember Manasseh? Let's just review last week, real quick. Um, Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. Manasseh was a wicked king. He reigned for 55 years. He didn't follow the example of his father. Uh, eventually, he was taken off into captivity. After years in captivity, he yielded to the Lord. He surrendered to the Lord. God not only forgave him, but God put him back on the throne of the nation of Judah. And he spent the rest of his life trying to undo the damage that he had done. Then he had a son who was Josiah's father. His name was Amon. Uh, Amon was a wicked king, was a poor example, uh, basically followed his father Manasseh in the early years. Uh, he lived a wasted life. But he had a son by the name of Josiah. Uh, in 2 Kings 22, here's what we read. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Uh, his mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. That just tells you who this guy is. Now, note verse 2, because verse 2 is really important. Verse 2 gives us the, um, the signature statement about Josiah's reign as a king. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. That is a great tribute. Did you note that? He didn't turn aside to the right nor to the left. You have your, your, uh, your Bible, and obviously you do, um, or you wouldn't be looking down. Turn, turn over to Joshua chapter 1. When, when uh, Joshua took the reins of leadership from Moses, what a tremendous responsibility that would be to follow a legend like Moses. And when the Lord gave instruction to Joshua, 
in uh, Joshua 1, verse 5, he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now catch this. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Do you see how the blessing and favor of God is so intimately tied up with Joshua's attitude towards the Word of God? It's very clear. Well, the same that was true for Joshua, that mandate was true for every king that was going to come hundreds and hundreds of years later. The majority of them ignored the word. They ignored the law. But Josiah didn't. Back in 2 Kings 22, he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. What a great legacy. Uh, jump over to 23, chapter 23. Verse 25. And before him, before whom? Before Josiah. There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Case could be made, this guy was the greatest king in the history of Israel. Now, did you see that phrase? There was no one like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his might. Uh, I'm sorry, Lou, I missed that. So our numbers aren't working. That's all right. Okay, Kim Hobson. Are you here, Kim? Kim's not here. If you're here, your, your daughter is ill upstairs. All right? Kim, K-I-M Hobson, H-O-B-S-O-N. Okay. All right. No sweat. Okay, now, did you see that phrase? you see how carefully I segued from that interruption and didn't let it throw me or bother me? Did you notice that? I thought that was very good. I'm very proud of myself. <clears throat> you see that phrase there? There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his might. Does that ring a bell with anything? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find what uh, uh, I, some have called the Great Commission of the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 is written to the men of Israel. It says, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgment which the Lord your God commanded me, that's Moses, to teach you. Now, what are, what are the commandments and the statutes and the judgments? It's the word of God. It's the law of God. 
Moses says, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded me to teach you so that you might do them in the land which you were going over to possess. He's talking about the promised land. So that, verse 2, you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which, I'm, which I command you all the days of your life, so that your days may be prolonged. Jump down to verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. And, and then note what else it says. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You know, one of the toughest things to do when you got a family, I think, is um, I have guys ask me this all the time. They say, what, do you, what, do, what, do you, what about family devotions? How many of you guys have young kids still at home? Okay. Do you ever, you ever th think about this? You ever talk to your wife? All right, what can we do to put the Bible in the kids' hearts and all this? And uh, I have a guy that asked me, what did you do when your kids were, you know, I don't have a lot of success stories to tell you. I don't. I remember my dad doing that with us, and, and it just, I was the oldest of three boys, and we're always, it just never seemed to quite work. You know, you try, and you do the best you can do, but some kid's spitting up, and another one's throwing spitballs, and it's just really, I think it's a good thing. We used to, we, for a while, we, we did it, you know, after dinner on Sunday nights, and we'd have a study, and then, I got to tell you, I, I don't know. I tried different things, and some of it worked, and some of it didn't work. But you know what I like? I like Deuteronomy 6. Because you know what Deuteronomy 6 basically says? Deuteronomy basically says to the men of Israel. Uh, and how many of you guys are fathers with kids at home? Let me see your hands again. How many of you guys um, are grandfathers? Let me see your hands. If you can get them up. Sorry, it's a rotator cuff issue. I've mentioned that before. All right. See, the job that we have as men is that you and your son and your grandson. So you're still in the equation. You're still in the picture. That they might fear the Lord. All right, so how do you do that? And see, what I want to do is I want to look at this in light of these kings. Because you'd have a king that would follow the Lord like Hezekiah, but then he'd have a son that was absolutely opposed to the Lord and would and spend his whole life rebelling and undoing the things that would honor the Lord. Um, see, this stuff is supposed to be passed on from generation to generation. Well, the key is Deuteronomy 6. And these words, the Word of God, the Bible, it shall be on your heart. We, we, we got to be men of the Word. Now, it doesn't mean you study the Bible 15 hours a day because you can't do that because you've got a real job. But it means that the Bible is a priority in your life. And not only is the Bible a priority in your life, but you put it in your heart. One of the greatest things you can do is to memorize Scripture. You don't have to memorize the whole Bible. But it is a, it is a wonderful thing to put the Word of God in your heart. It's a good thing when you're driving around town to have the Bible on CD um, and listen to a passage 
And then listen to it again, and, listen, and then as you're driving around, say it out loud with the passage. And what you'll do is you'll memorize it, and then you got it in your heart, and you got it in your mind. Uh, and these words, see, here's the key to fathering. And these words shall be on your heart, and you shall diligently teach them to your children. Um, that's the job of a father, is to teach. That's the job of a grandfather, is to teach. Um, we're to model. We're to demonstrate the truth. And it doesn't mean you walk around with a 40-pound Bible and a concordance in your hand every time you go out the door. But when you go out the door, what you do is, and you know, guys, I'll be honest with you, I sometimes feel in here that I repeat myself. I, not sometimes. Every time I get up here, I'm afraid I'm repeating myself. Because, but some of these things you got to go over time and time again. There, there are fundamentals that we just have to emphasize. Uh, <clears throat> fathering is discipleship. That's what being a father is. Uh, being a grandfather is discipleship. The heart of the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us, the heart of it, we oh, going to all the world and all, the heart of it is to make disciples. So we spend a lot of money, churches and evangelical organizations do, Sending people out for, we have discipleship conferences and discipleship magazines and discipleship small groups and discipleship conferences and all. Discipleship should start in your home. And it should start in my home. And the key word to make a disciple is the word with, W-I-T-H. Jesus had 12 guys. And he was with them all the time. All the time. Um... And they were always asking him stupid questions. That sounds to me like being a father with young kids. Right? Were they not always with Jesus? If Jesus went to Capernaum, they went with him. If Jesus went down to the lake, they went with him. If Jesus went up to the mountain, they went with him. If Jesus went up to Jerusalem, they went with him. They were always with him. Now see, that's a father. You know what strikes me about studying these kings? I don't think they did that. I think these kings were so busy building their kingdoms and building their reign, realms and worried about their legacy and, and building castles and fortresses and cities and doing this and making this alliance and doing this that they forgot the most important thing that a man can ever do, and that is to be with his children and turn them into disciples. But see, you got to be with them, and it takes time. There's always this debate that goes on between uh, quantity time and quality time. You see, well, I, I, I don't have, we don't have much time, but what we have is quality. Well, you know, that's just not true. Have you noticed that you can't schedule quality time? Okay, kids, we got 12 minutes here. Let's make it quality. You can't do that. Quality time shows up unexpectedly in the midst of quantity time. You never know when quality time is going to make an appearance. That's why, um, that's why if, if you're a young father with young kids, or if you're an old father with young kids, I didn't mean to say young father. I meant to say if you're a father with young children. If you've got kids at home, one of the greatest things you can do is that you put them to bed. Um, 
Well, my wife puts him to bed. Why don't you put him to bed? You're the father. So I'm watching a game. Hey, you know what? Turn that game off and get upstairs, and, unless it's a playoff game. <laughs> you know, there are parameters to all this. I mean, you know, there are some things that come into being, other principles. But generally speaking, you know what? You, you won't remember that game in the morning. Why don't you turn that game off? And, and I've noticed when my kids were young, there was always a battle because my goal was to get them to sleep. But you see, they didn't want to go to sleep. So there's always this thing going on. Well, I want to get back down and watch that TV program. Forget the TV program. Uh, watch something later if you want to. But your job is to be a father, and your job is to be with them. One of the things you can do that I think pays off incredible di dividends, when you've got young children, read to your kids. Dad ought to read to them. And, and, and you don't need to read fairy tales to them. And you don't need to read nonsense to them and Mickey and Donald. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, the way Disney's going, they're going to have those guys in a relationship before long. <laughs> Your kids ought to know about Daniel and Joseph, and they ought to know about Josiah, and they ought to know about Peter, and they ought to know about Timothy. How are they going to learn about that? You say, well, we bring them to church here. Good. I'm glad you do. But it's not the church's job to equip your kids. That's your job. It's, it's not, you, you, so you got them here tonight, great. You got them here Sunday, great. What is that, two hours out of how many hours in the week? And all the junk and all the filth and all the stuff they're hearing at school. So my kids go to a Christian school. They're still hearing it. Because kids are kids. The culture, you see? You got to be with, W-I-T-H. I don't see, as I study these kings, one of the things that stands out to me is that I don't see that these men were interested in building sons. I don't see that they were interested in building daughters. I don't see for the majority of them that they weren't interested in building anything else other than their reputations and their careers. Now, you've got you, you to provide for a family, and God's given you some gifts, and you need to do well at work and, and, and be productive. Nothing wrong with that. That's, that's something you should do. But you can't pour everything into that and neglect making disciples. You say, well, Steve, you know, I wish I had known this 20 years ago because it's too late. It's not too late. I'll never forget, years ago, I was speaking at a conference in Chicago. And um, halfway through the conference, a guy came up to me. A big guy, probably 50, tough-looking guy. You know, this guy could handle himself. And uh, he introduced himself. He said, you know, told me his name. He said, I've been a Chicago cop for 35 years. And, and the guy broke down in tears. He just started sobbing. And uh, he, said, he said, you know, Steve, um, I have two daughters, and I blew it so bad, I can't even tell you about it. I can't even express it. And, and quite frankly, they're married, and they moved as far away from me as they could get. And I don't blame them. Um, he said, they despise me, but I've come to know Christ, and, and he's changed my life, and he said, I, I, wish, I wish I could have those years back, and, and we talked a little bit, and I said, yeah, you know, why don't, let, let me run something by you, why don't, and he was telling me all about it and what he had done, I said, you know, what if you were to write your girls a letter? 
and just tell them what you just told me. Just put it in a letter. You've been very open. You've been very honest. You have held nothing back in regard to your responsibility, and then it's your fault. Why don't you say to them what you've said to me? And don't expect anything in return. Just send it off. And don't make any demands and don't make any expectations. Uh, what you're telling me is that you've wronged them. Then you tell them that. And don't make any excuses. And then let God work in their hearts. And, and then ask God if he might begin, as Malachi says in 4.6, to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. See, it's never too late. Um, when God works in our hearts, it's our responsibility if there's a breach in the wall, it's our responsibility. It's not your daughter's responsibility to come to you. It's your responsibility to go to her. You see? I don't see a lot of that happening with these kings. But, but you know, guys, I want the favor of God in my life, and I want it with my children. And we all screw up, and we all have things we wish we could go back and undo, and we all kick ourselves because of how we handle situations with them. You see? But it takes a man to go back and make something right. It takes a man to go back and say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Don't say, if I was wrong, would you forgive me? I love what Corey Ten Boom said. She said, the blood of Jesus has never cleansed an excuse. Don't make an excuse. You know in your heart you're wrong. Just tell them you're wrong. And there might be some tears. You know what? When they see the brokenness, they'll know it's, they'll know it's legitimate. And they'll know it's authentic. This guy, Josiah, put the word of God in his heart. And he didn't depart from it. Now, was he perfect? No. He wasn't perfect. He was just a guy. But you know what? He had it in his heart that he wanted to know the Lord. He wanted to walk with the Lord. He wanted to be authentic with the Lord. He wanted to be legitimate. And God honors him because of the way that he lived his life. Now, um, there's no question in Scripture that Josiah is an outstanding king. There's a, uh, uh, there's a restaurant. In fact, there's one right over here, and there's one over by my house, the Cotton Patch. Was it Cotton Patch Cafe? Is that what it's called? And uh, I was over there the other night, and there's a new one that opened up where, over where we live. And um, when I was walking down the hall, they had the picture of the two guys that were the founders, and it gave their names, and it said... Uh, whatever their two names were, and then underneath it said, outstanding in their field. And I looked at it, and, and there they were, and what they were doing was they were out in a field standing. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, among the kings, all of them, Josiah was outstanding in his field. Uh, he's a guy I want to emulate. He's a guy I want to learn from. Uh, he was outstanding for several reasons. Um, you know, in our history, we've got some great presidents and we've got some poor presidents. At Christmas time, I was reading a book about George Washington um, called General Washington's Christmas Farewell. Um, interesting little book because, um, uh, well, just from the flap. In late November of 1783, when Washington finally received formal notice 
of the signing of a peace treaty with England, he had little more than a month to accept the transfer of power from British troops in New York, to bid farewell to his troops, and to resign his commission to Congress if he hoped to make it to Mount Vernon for Christmas. If there's anything he wanted, he wanted to get home for Christmas, just like you'd want to get home. The writer says, he could have remained in charge of the army and become a virtual king to the Americans who loved him. When you read this book, it's just a story of his trek back to Mount Vernon, saying goodbye to his troops. They loved this man. They revered this man. Uh, they, they honored this man. Even King George, who was his enemy. There was a man painting a portrait for King George. He was discussing pictures with the king, and George Washington came up. Now, they just finished this war. Discussing pictures with the king, and frankly confessing, confessing his personal ambition to go to America and paint George Washington, uh, the painter by the name of West was asked by the king what he thought the general would do when the peace finally came. Would he remain in command of the army? Would he become head of state? He could be anything he wanted to be. West said to the king that he had learned that Washington only wanted return to his farm at Mount Vernon. The king was astonished. If Washington does that, his majesty declared, he will be the greatest man in the world. And see, that's what Washington wanted to do. He didn't need power. He didn't need the public eye. He didn't need the adulation. He just wanted to go home and be with his family and do what he loved to do. You see? When you read this book, and other books of history will tell you, uh, Washington literally could have written, if he had given the word, he would have been the perpetual president of the United States until he died. But he didn't want it. Uh, greatest president probably in our history. I'll tell you what, I was sure proud of President Bush yesterday. I shot him an email when I read that. I'm telling you, I've been praying for him. I've been praying for him almost every day that he would take that step. I've been praying for him that he would be an Amaziah. No, back up. I've been praying for Bush that he would be a Josiah instead of an Amaziah. We covered Amaziah one night. And it says of Amaziah that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a whole heart. Uh, the acid issue for George Bush was this issue of marriage. And he stepped up to the plate and he did it. I'm grateful for, 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 for a man like that. I really am. Because there are a lot of guys up there in Washington that are running for cover. And they're afraid to take it on. Uh, he did the right thing. So let's pray for him. Uh, if, 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 hey, if you won't stand for marriage being between a man and a woman, what will you stand for? And when would you finally ever make a stand? If you won't make a stand there, you see? we got two issues going on in this country that are under attack. Marriage is under attack, and law is under attack. And when you lose those two things, you lose a civilization. I'll tell you something, guys. We, we, we got, uh, we're living in interesting days, remarkable days. That's why Josiah's example is even more relevant to where we are. I, I want to give you some reasons that Josiah was outstanding in the field of kings. Okay, when you look at all those 40 kings, this guy was outstanding. Uh, in 2 Kings, where, where are we? In 2 Kings 22, in verses 3 to 7, 
he was outstanding because he immediately began to repair the temple. Now, when you study the kings, one of the things that you find out is that the temple was central because it was the temple, the temple that Solomon built, it was the temple where they worshiped God. The temple was the center of the nation. The, the center was where the sacrifices were made. It was the heart of the nation. Uh, it was the spiritual life. It was the, the conscience of the nation. Uh, many kings let the temple go into disrepair, and they even destroyed it, and they would even rob it and, and use it to pay off other kings. Not Josiah. Uh, what Josiah did right out of the blocks was that Josiah repaired the temple. And you can read about that in verses 3 through 7. And as they are repairing the temple, because you see, the temple was in shambles. That which is good and right and honorable was in rubble. That's sort of where we are as a nation, you see. So much of what we built upon in this nation uh, is in shambles and is in ruins um, and it's under a great need of repair. Marriage is under a great need of repair in this nation. How many times have we talked about that? And how many times have I quoted Theodore Roosevelt? What a stud he was. Roosevelt said the greatest thing a man can ever do is stay married. Stay married. So you're concerned about marriage and the attack on marriage, then stay married. Stay married. Staying married is not easy. Staying married is hard. But it's what we're called to do. If you do nothing else in your life, you say, Steve, I've already blown it twice. Hey, you know what? I'm on my third marriage. Then you make this one work. Let Christ rule and reign in your heart and let Christ rule and reign in your home. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward. I press on. You see? This is what God has called you to today. This is what he's called you to for the rest of your life. You stay married. You see? Uh, what, what, is, uh, what does Psalm 11 say? If the, thousand, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, what the righteous can do is they can rebuild the foundations. That's what Nehemiah did later on. We've got to rebuild the foundations. The reason we're in trouble as a nation is that the foundations have been attacked and the foundations are being destroyed. This guy repaired the temple. As they're repairing the temple, something happens. Verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. And Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was in the house. They've delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And it came about when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, all these other guys. Look at verse 13. Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. What book was he talking about? He's probably talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. Specifically, he's got to be talking about the book of Deuteronomy because of what he says in verse 13. Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. Because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book, 
to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now, let me tell you what happened. This nation was in such bad shape that they didn't even have a copy of the Word of God anymore. If you look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, 17, 17 says that the king of Israel is not to have more than one wife, um, and 17, 18 says that the king of Israel is to have a copy of the law that belongs to him. Well, Josiah didn't have it. Why didn't he have it? Probably because there was no copy of the Word of God in Josiah's day. Probably because of what his father had done. We didn't study his father, but his father was a loser. His father did everything wrong. And probably because of his grandfather, Manasseh, before Manasseh repented. Remember, Manasseh killed the prophets. Manasseh set up a, uh, a phallic symbol in the Holy of Holies. Uh, Manasseh sacrificed his uh, son to the fire god, uh, Baal Moloch. The boy was incinerated. The child was incinerated. Now, now, Manasseh turned late in life, but he didn't have time to go back and undo everything he had done. One of the things, apparently, along the line that they had done was that they destroyed the Word of God. So, Josiah is leading God's nation, and there's no copy of the Word of God. So, when, when they find this book buried in the temple somewhere, as they're repairing it, they bring it in. They read it to this guy, and he starts tearing his clothes that's a hint that at the minimum he had the book of Deuteronomy. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Um, Warren Wearsby says this. If indeed Shaphan read from the book of Deuteronomy, then what Josiah heard read from chapters 4 through 13 would convict him about the wicked things the nation had already done. Chapters 14 through 18 of Deuteronomy would disturb him because of what the people had not done. And the covenant spelled out in chapters 27 to 30 would warn him of what God would do if the nation didn't repent. Um, Deuteronomy 28 is a central passage in Deuteronomy because basically in Deuteronomy 28, here's what God says to the men of Israel. He says to them, <clears throat> I'm going to drink some of the stonebriar water. I'm going to try it out, keep my voice irrigated here. Deuteronomy 28, here's what God says. God says, if you follow me and you follow my word, what I'll do is I'll back a, bump tr a dump truck of blessing and favor into your life like you can't believe. Deuteronomy 28 is full of the promises of God to bless the people of Israel if they'll walk with him and follow him. And I mean the stuff in Deuteronomy 28 will take your breath away, what God said he'd do for them. Um, But then the second half of Deuteronomy 28, God says, if you don't listen to me and if you don't follow me and if you follow the gods of the other nations, here's what I'll do. I'll curse you. And the list of curse, curses are twice as long as the list of blessings. Uh, now, God told them up front. I'm going to tell you something. When you read the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, you've got to be an idiot not to walk with God. I mean, you've got to be a major league fool to not walk with God. It's the smartest way. It's the best way. God says, here's what I'll do for you. And out of these 40 kings, only eight of them attempted to do it. Uh, things got so bad, they didn't have a copy of the Word of God anymore. So what happens? They find the Word. It had to be Deuteronomy because he reads the book of Deuteronomy and he finds out they're in trouble and they're in danger of God judging them 
they were in trouble as a nation because they didn't have the Word of God. This guy was also outstanding. Not only in repairing the temple, he was outstanding in the Scriptures. Because when he got his hands on the Word of God, he kicked into action. Um, what happens when a nation is without the truth and without the Word of God? Thomas Cahill, in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, interesting title. It's a great history book. He's talking about the Romans and the demise of the Roman Empire. He says, as the emperor's laws became weaker, the ceremonies surrounding them became more Baroque. In the last days, the divine one's edict, meaning the emperor, is written in gold on purple paper, received with covered hands in the fashion of a priest handling sacred vessels, held aloft by the adoration of the assembled throng who prostrate themselves before the law and then ignore it. That was Rome in the last years of Rome. There was absolutely no regard for the law. None. Yesterday, President Bush said he'll support the constitutional amendment saying that husband is between a woman and a man. Saying that what is? What did I say? Constitution? Yeah. Marriage. Marriage. Upon hearing that, um, Ted Kennedy rushed to the Senate floor and thundered, and I quote, by endorsing this shameful proposal. That's how he started. What is this shameful proposal? That marriage is between a man and a woman. That's shameful. That's how far we've gone. That's how far gone we are. That's a shameful proposal. Yeah, I wonder what Mary Jo Kopechny thinks about that. Anyway, I don't like this guy. <laughs> and if you like him, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> By endorsing this shameful, this guy doesn't know shame. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He never has known what he's talking about. President Bush will go down in history as the first president to write bias back into the Constitution. Then he goes on and says, we've amended the Constitution only 17 times. It has often been amended to expand and protect people's rights, never to take away or restrict their rights. Well, who said homosexuals had a right to marry? But see, we live in a day age where there's no law and where there's no truth and where, see, what does it say in the Constitution? The rights that we have given have been endowed by us, by who? By our Creator. Who they don't acknowledge the Creator. So we make up rights that don't exist and we don't know where they come from. We just want the right to do whatever we want anytime we want. That's irresponsibility. But that's Kennedy's life. You see, morally, that's his family's life. You read, the two, you, you read two biographies on their father, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. One is called Seeds of Destructions. The second biography is called The Sins of the Fathers, written by two men that were in the Kennedy camp and were for them. And writing, it talks about the fact, it's undisputed that they would share with, they would have sex with the same one, they'd pass them around. That's wicked. 
unbelievably wicked. This shameful proposal. That's what happens when you lose the word of God in the family. That's what happens when you lose the word of God in the nation. Now, we'd expect that out of some liberal politician. But you know what's really concerning? <clears throat> I was up in Wisconsin a few weeks ago. We were in a conference, and uh, men's conference, and there were a bunch of guys from different churches, a bunch of pastors there. And I was having lunch. I sit down with these guys, and they got the guys speaking, and the guys doing the workshop, and we're in there having lunch. I sit down next to this guy. I don't know who this guy is, but it turns out he's a pastor up there. And as we're talking, he says, hey, you, you travel around quite a bit, and you do men's stuff. He said, uh, what do you see going on in the church today? And uh, what great things do you, go on, you see going on in the church? And I said, well, I'll tell you, the greatest thing I see going on in the church is that the church is walking away from truth. He said, what? I said, we're walking away from truth. I said, I think we're so enamored with church growth. We're so enamored with putting people in the seats that we're hedging on the truth. He said, you're kidding. I said, I'm not kidding. And then this week in World Magazine, uh, Gene Veith writes a, uh, a column called Stray Pastors. And the, the subtitle is, Only Half of America's Ministers Hold to a Biblical Worldview. Um, he quotes George Barna, the Christian pollster. He says, uh, George Barna, the Christian pollster, put together a list of biblical teachings that presumably Christians of every denomination or theological tradition could affirm. Namely, there is absolute moral truth in the Bible, based on the Bible. Biblical teaching is accurate. Jesus was without sin. Satan literally exists. God is omnipotent and omniscient. He's all-powerful, and he's everywhere, and he knows all things. I added that in. Salvation is by grace alone. Christians have a personal responsibility to evangelize. Then he goes on and says, this is a bare-bones list. It says nothing about the Trinity or the deity of Christ or other important teachings that are essential for salvation. The list has to do not so much with theology as with the assumptions that are behind one's theology, that is, one's worldview. Any minister of whatever denomination, especially a Protestant one, should be able to agree on these basics, but only 51% of the pastors do. Barna's breakdown of the data is telling. In the two largest Protestant denominations, Southern Baptists had the most pastors, percentage-wise, who hold to this biblical worldview, which was 71%. But that means there are how many that don't? 29. So I thank God for Paul Pressler, and I thank God for Paige Patterson, who led the charge to take the seminaries and the denomination back from the liberals who believe this nonsense. You see? I do. I thank God for it. But there's still some work to do in that denomination. Uh, the Methodists had the fewest. Why am I not surprised? 27% believe those things. John Wesley around, he'd kick some tail in the Methodist church. You know that? He'd put those guys on a horse and tie them up on a saddle backwards and send them out of town is what he'd do. That one in four Methodist pastors takes what the Bible teaches seriously might be surprising, encouraging, in a liberal-leaning denomination. But it is, anyway, unbelievable. He goes on and says, uh, the statistics of pastors holding a biblical worldview for other denominations studied were 50% of non-Southern Baptists, 57% of Baptists who aren't Southern Baptists, 
51% of non-denominational Protestants, and catch this, 44% of charismatic or Pentecostal churches. See, that's why a lot of the nonsense you see on Christian television is from Pentecostal and charismatic pastors. Some of those guys have a biblical worldview, but almost 60% of them don't. That's why they teach such foolishness. Now, this all has to do with the Word of God. This all has to do with the Bible. See, we're in trouble as a nation, and we're in trouble as evangelicals because... Now, we got, we got the Bible everywhere. How many Bibles do these men have in their offices and have in their homes? Uh, last year, I walked around and counted how many Bibles I had in my house. I think we had 29 Bibles. I think. It was somewhere in there. It was either 29 or 31, you know? Well, some of those guys have got that many Bibles, but the question is, do you believe the Bible? See, the Word of God was absent in Josiah's day. We've got Bibles. We're just not believing the Bible. And if you're not believing the Bible, you've got nothing to teach, which is going to set people free. Josiah was outstanding because he stood on the Word of God. Let me show you what else he was outstanding about. He was outstanding in repentance. We've already seen this in verse 13. Because what he did was, he said, I want you, I want you men, I want you to go inquire. And what they do, they, they, they go and talk with this woman who's a prophetess. And you can read about this in, in verses 14 down to 21. And she was a godly woman, and he asked about the judgment that was going to come. And in verse 16, thus says the Lord, I, bring, I will bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. That's Deuteronomy 28. Verse 18, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you, shall say, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you, truly heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you should be gathered to your grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil which I will bring on this place. And they brought back word to the king. So you know what happened with Josiah? God said, yes, I'm going to judge, but I won't bring it on you in your lifetime. Now, he had three sons that took the throne after he did. None of them followed the Lord, and that's when judgment came. Um, God's a merciful God. You guys ever wonder if God's angry with you? You ever wonder that he won't forgive you? You ever wonder that you've done something that's so terrible that he can't forgive? Let me tell you something. If he can forgive him in Manasseh, he can forgive you. Uh, look at how he responds to this guy. He, he, he sees his tears. He sees his brokenness. He sees his repentance. And, and what is repentance? I told you what Thomas Watson has said about repentance. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, says repentance is the vomiting of the soul. That's what repentance is. We live in a day of synthetic repentance. Some guy gets caught doing something, and he denies it, and then they come up with the DNA, and he says, well, oh, yeah, but I'm really sorry I did it. We live in an age of synthetic repentance. What Josiah did was authentic repentance. Authentic repentance is a brokenness. It's a godly sorrow, the Scripture says. When God sees someone who wretches over their sin, and who vomits up their sin, and who regrets their sin with tears, and that words can't even express it. You know what? God will be merciful and kind and long-suffering to you. 
He won't hold that sin against you. That's the great news. That's what he did. That's what he did for Josiah. You guys still with me here? Are you? You guys ever screw up? You look like you do. I screw up all the time. So what do you do when you screw up? And you know the Word of God, and you know what you should do. See, when I read these good kings, these good kings screwed up. Well, that shouldn't surprise us, because we want to know the Lord, and we screw up, and we do stupid things. And then you're embarrassed to go to the Lord. But you know what? You go to the Lord. And you say, Lord, I shouldn't have done it. I knew better. I knew better, and I went ahead and did it. But when there's a contrition in your heart, when you're not trying to spin the Lord, when you're not trying to be Clintonian in your repentance... And you know what I mean, don't you? When you're not trying to spin somebody for effect, when there's a brokenness in your heart, God sees that. And I'm going to tell you something. He brings you right in the fold. And that, and that sin is blotted out. It's forgiven. It's taken care of. And it's forgotten. So Hebrews says, your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Isn't that great? It's the mercy of God. It's the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God. This guy was outstanding in his repentance. Go to verse, uh, chapter 23 real quick. Uh, because he was also outstanding in his obedience. If you remember when we talked about Manasseh last week, one of the things we mentioned with Manasseh is that when he finally repented in that Babylonian dungeon, God not only forgave Manasseh, but then God had put him back on the throne. And Manasseh spent the rest of his years in obedience to God and doing, he was trying to rebuild the things which he had destroyed in the nation. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. If someone is repentant, you're going to see it in their life. You're going to see it in their attitudes. You're going to see it in their actions. You ever had someone come to you and they've wronged you and they say, I'm sorry, and you forgive them? But then they, the way they start living, there's no indication that they're sorry and that there's any remorse. All they have are words. But when someone is genuinely sorry, you're going to see it lived out in their life. That's what Manasseh did. And that's what happened here with, um, uh, with Josiah. If you look at chapter 23, verse 4. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, another false sexual god, and for all the host of heaven. That's astrology. These were in the temple. And he had read in Deuteronomy, these aren't supposed to be in the temple. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Now look at verse 5. And he did away with the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. Do you see how this guy is obeying the Lord? He's not making deals with anybody. He's following the Lord. He's doing exactly what God said. He's not departing from the word of the Lord to the right nor to the left. He's going right down the middle, and he's following the Lord. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it into dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. I really like that. He pulverized this idolatry. Pulverized it. He didn't put it in a back room. He didn't, he didn't rent a storage uh, uh, unit somewhere and stick them in there. 
because he might need them down the road. He just pulverized those suckers and ground them in the dust. Look at verse 7. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord. Remember that? We talked about Baal worship. Baal worship, they would enact all of these myths about the god Baal, which were all sexual in nature. So they had to have three kinds of prostitutes, male prostitutes, female prostitutes, and sodomite prostitutes. These prostitutes were in the temple that Solomon had built to the glory of God in Jerusalem. What does he do? He broke down their houses, and he sent them on their way. This guy wasn't messing around. This guy wasn't worried about what Ted Kennedy thought. Then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense, from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high place of the gate. See, what this guy is doing is obeying the Lord. What this guy is doing is putting shoe leather to what he believes. This is why God said, you're not going to see judgment. I'm going to bless you because you're a guy after my own heart. In verse 10, it goes on. In verse 11, in verse 12, the altars which are on the roof, he takes care of them. 13, the high places which were before Jerusalem, and the Ashtoreth, and the abomination of the Sidonians, all these false gods. Look at 14. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with human bones. Now, 15 is really interesting. Okay? 15 is really wild to me. Because in our study, you remember the nation broke in the two after Solomon. Solomon's son was Rehoboam, but he was a fool. In 72 hours, he destroyed everything that his father had worked for and his grandfather had worked for. So this other king is set up in the north, and his name, anybody remember? He's the first king of the north, is Jeroboam. Now, God said to Jeroboam, hey, listen, if you walk with me, I'll bless you as much as I bless David. I'll make a covenant with you like I made with David. And this Jeroboam was another fool. Because instead of saying, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, what an unbelievable offer God made him. And the guy was a fool. The guy, what he did was, he was so worried in the north. See, the people were supposed to go to Jerusalem and worship. But he thought to himself, i got to hold on to power. i got to get a second term here. If I let the people go down and worship, what's going to happen is they're going to, they're going to be influenced by Rehoboam, and they are going to turn on me. So what I better do is I better set up uh, another place to worship. So he set up two other places at, uh, uh, at Bethel and at Dan. Now, God never told him to do that, but he just did it. And then he came up with his own religion. And then at Bethel and Dan, instead of them going down to Jerusalem to worship the one true God, he builds some golden uh, calves. Now, who's the first guy to do that? Aaron. Yeah. God wasn't, God's not pleased with golden calves because it violates the commandment which you were not to bow down before any graven image. You see? So Jeroboam in the north, he builds these golden... So he leads the people in worship in the north right out of the blocks into idolatry. And God says to him, if you remember, and I'm going to take the time to look, look at the verse, but God said to Jeroboam, there's going to be a king one day down the road by the name of Josiah, and he's going to undo everything you did. Well, look at verse 15. <clears throat> Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel in the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel's sin, had made. Even that altar in the high place he broke down. Then he demolished it, stoned, ground them to dust. This guy's big on grinding. 
and burn the Asherah. Look at verse 24. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And we read it again. And before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Gosh, this guy was outstanding. He was, he was outstanding in, in repairing the temple. He was outstanding in the word. He was outstanding in repentance. He was outstanding in obedience. You say, this, this guy is unbelievable. But can I tell you something? He was just a man. You say, was this guy average in anything? The answer is yes. He was average in death. In death. Flip over real quick as we close. Second Chronicles 34. In Second Chronicles 34, uh, see, none of these, hey, you know what? Nobody's perfect. Nobody gets it right all the time. We're all men. We're all flawed. We're all sinners. <clears throat> in... Uh, in Second in, in Chronicles, uh, actually it's 35, we read about the death of Josiah. In verse 20 of uh, chapter 35 of Second Chronicles. It says, and after all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. Now, this king of Egypt is coming to make war with another nation. He's not coming to make war with Josiah. Um, but Josiah, for some reason, thinks he needs to take this guy on. And verse 21, Necho sent messengers to him, Josiah saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me that he may not destroy you. Now, the king of Egypt is speaking truth here. Um, look at verse 22. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plains of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot, carried him in the second chariot, which he had, brought him to Jerusalem, where he died, and was buried in the tombs of his father. And all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Again, Wearsby says this, Josiah had no mandate from the Lord to interfere in the dispute between Egypt and Babylon Yet Pharaoh Necho claimed that the Lord had commanded him to help Assyria. Um, according to 2 Chronicles 35, 22, this message was from the mouth of God. It, it's interesting that uh, Josiah was outstanding, but Josiah was not without his faults. And Josiah was not without... Um, he was not without sin. You know what can happen, guys? 
Um, when, we, when we're walking with the Lord, what can happen is we can develop an overconfidence. Now, we're to be confident when we walk with God, but sometimes we can develop a subtle overconfidence, and a subtle overconfidence is, display, is displayed by prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. We never see here in Josiah's life that he went to the Lord and said, Lord, do you want me to go fight this battle? We don't ever see him seeking the Lord. We don't ever see him asking the Lord. What happened? This guy did a lot of things right. This guy had hit on all cylinders, and he did it for a long time. And the subtle danger in walking with the Lord for a long time is that you can begin to assume. You can begin to assume that you're on track. And when we begin to assume, we get careless. Here was a good man. Here was a godly man. Here was one of the greatest of the kings, and he got careless. He did not have a sanction from the Lord to go fight this battle. So every morning when we get up, here's what we ought to do. We just ought to say, Lord, I give you my life all over again. Thanks for your favor. Thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your blessing. Would you lead me today? Don't let me go, from, let me go to the right. Don't let me go to the left. I want to walk with you. Give me wisdom I don't have. I need you. I need your wisdom. Lead me. Guide me. God's looking for men like that. He didn't have any perfect guys. Um, he just has men that are men. Um, so often I'll, guys will say to me, you know, Steve, I've always, God can never use me. I'm a failure. I've just failed. And some of you guys are thinking, man, you know, this, this guy, that's how he screwed up. You don't know my story, man. I really, there's no way God, if you knew what I, I've done, if you knew how I failed, listen. You know what? If you'll come to the Lord in repentance and brokenness, he'll use you. Let me ask you something. Who else is he going to use? Do you know that God has no one else to choose from except a bunch of failures? Say, I failed. Well, join the club. Uh, how many of you guys have not ever failed? If you raise your hand, you've just failed. <laughs> because you're proud. Remember the lady that came out to C.H. Spurgeon 125 years ago? And she, and, and, and she believed in sinless perfectionism. And she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'll have you to know that I haven't sinned in 35 years. And he looked at her and he said, oh, well, you must be very proud. And she said, I am. <laughs> And didn't even know she was in sin. God has no one to choose from except failures. That's you, that's me, that's everybody around you. But out of his mercy and goodness and grace, we receive his kindness and his forgiveness and his long-suffering. Josiah was king of his nation. You're king of your castle. You're king of your home. We can be good kings that walk with the Lord, we can be bad kings that rebel against him. It's a pretty clear choice. And you wouldn't be here if you weren't interested in making the right choice. Lord, we bow before you. Thank you for these bios that we're going through. Thank you that it's so real to life. Um, I want to thank you for uh, President Bush. 
that he made a decision to stand. I, I know there were people pressuring him to not take that stand because it might cost him politically and all that stuff. But he did what was right. And I know you'll honor him for doing what's right. I pray that you'll protect him. I pray that you'll continue to give him courage to withstand the assaults and the foolishness that's going to come his way. Now, Lord, uh, we thank you for a man who would do that. We would pray for ourselves that we might do that on the turf that you've given to us. Make us men that will withstand the pressure of the world and everyone around us and the taunts and the harassment and just simply stand on the word of God and take the heat. We see that all the way through the scriptures. We see that all the way through the Bible. Men who had to take a stand, uh, many of them didn't because they craved the approval of the world. But we admire the handful who did because they received your approval. Lord, things haven't changed much in 3,000 years. The same issues are going on. The same uh, spiritual battles are being fought. But your word is still supreme, and Jesus is still Lord. And we are so thankful that you have given us your word, and you have drawn us to yourself. This week, this week, as opportunities come our way, and as pressures come our way, may we stand on your word. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.